May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Dominion Podcast. We're here today to learn how to live under the rule of Christ and live over all that he has created. Mm-hmm. My name's uh, Jeremy Boyd. I'm your beta host. And uh, and I'm Alex. Alpha host. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say <laughs> So you called me up this morning and said, hey, come on over. Let's do a podcast. And uh, I didn't get the notes until two seconds ago. So uh, what is it we're talking about today, Alex? What's This is episode two of Dominion Podcast. We got a pretty good streak going on so far. Yeah. Let's not break it. What's yeah. this one all about? Yeah. So we want to talk about how to be wise in an ideological age. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being gracious. You you found out what we were talking about when you sat down at the table. <laughs> I'm just primed and ready to go all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's my confidence in you. But uh, yeah, I thought we would talk about, yeah, how to be wise in an ideological age. And I think this is super important um, in the day that we live in. We live in a day that is increasingly characterized by polarization of people, even families, uh, friends, uh, tribalism, you know, the retreat into a group that thinks everything that we think, the way we think, hostility, uh, the inability for meaningful conversation. It seems harder and harder. Um, it doesn't get any, but it seems harder and harder to have deep, meaningful interactions with people, even amongst Christians. And I see this, this is kind of the water that we swim in. In other words, it's not so much about what we think or do, it's about how we think and how we act. And this kind of behavior is perpetuated by social media and the media in general, which just often reinforces caricatures of people uh, they function as echo chambers where we have our assumptions just unchallenged and reinforced over and over and over, um, reinforcing just what we already believe. All of this, despite the fact that we live in a day and age where we have more access to information than ever. I mean, mm-hmm. I was just thinking the other day, I was watching um, I was watching something about, uh, you know, John Adams and Um, the formation of the United States and just thinking through, you know, if you wanted to get the word out about something politically, you know, to respond to something, uh, it would take a while to get that information out there. I mean, the means of communication, what you have, you have print media Mm -hmm. and, um, takes a long time to set that type. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It takes a long time to even get that thing going, but you can, you can, I guess you can forgive people for living in a kind of ignorance because there just wasn't access to information. But we have access to so much, almost, I mean, everything you can imagine. And yet that doesn't seem to help us or to be preventing this descent into ideological Mm -hmm. thinking. It's almost like the reason that uh, people are the way they are you know, we assume it's just because they don't have enough information. Yeah, yeah. You know, and th- this is the progressive worldview, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we just need to change the culture yeah. or the system. Yeah. We need to educate people properly educate and then they'll yourself. stop being stupid. Yeah. That's really not how we live. That's not the Christian worldview. No. So you want to expound on that? Oh, yeah, bit, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's kind of the point that this, I want to say from the outset, this is not a purely intellectual problem because there's no such thing as a purely intellectual problem. In a biblical worldview, the way that we think and the way that we act are tied to our, our heart. You know, we, there's not like 
in the Bible, it's it's our mind. You know, that's not that doesn't mean your brain. Mm-hmm. And the way that we think is uh, through the lens of often our character, and our character and who we are um, determines what we receive. And so the the ideological thinking and acting that is so pervasive at this time is not just a problem of information. It's not just a mental problem. It is a fundamentally religious problem, uh, and it is a moral problem. And those have intellectual, you know, fruit. You know, the pattern of the way that we think is influenced by that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about ways that we can, you know, move away from that. But we want to see this as fundamentally a religious problem. And, and to use a biblical term, uh, this is the living out of folly. So we're going to read text from Proverbs, but ideological thinking is an expression, a manifestation of foolishness. Right. And the antidote to ideological thinking and acting is wisdom. And that happens through the fear of the Lord or belief. Mm-hmm. And that is produced through the gospel. So that's kind of where we're going today. We're going we're, we're gonna to work our way around to that. But yeah, I just wanted to talk about, you know, why is it so difficult to have these conversations, whether it be about COVID, uh, whether it be about the nature of the church and the state, whether it be about anything, ju- justice. Uh, why does it feel like we are losing our capacity to discuss things? And I would say it's because of folly and, mm-hmm. and that's ideological in nature. Now, there's a danger too of, of coming to the point where we say, well, if you haven't come to the same conclusion as I am, you're obviously being a fool. Right. But we would say there's a lot of people that are true believers that are thinking foolishly. Yeah. They're almost adopting the world's way of thinking in these areas. Yeah. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, presume to to judge the state of their souls based on the conclusions they've come to uh, necessarily, but right. it's a problem for sure. You know, if you're trying to tailor the Christian gospel for, mm-hmm. you know, a worldly audience, you mm-hmm. might, you might run into that. Yeah. And, and so again, to be clear, would I, would I, and that's a helpful example. Someone is not a fool because they just disagree with you or they have a different position from you. What, what I'm trying to say is a bit deeper than that. It's saying that, Um, Our problem, the deeper problem than what we're thinking is how we're thinking. And, you know, I've noticed in the discussions most recently that even the church is susceptible to this kind of thinking. So what what do I mean by ideological thinking? Um, What is ideological thinking? Well, as I said, ideological thinking and feeling is an expression of folly, so Proverbs 18, 1 to 2 kind of expresses and describes this way of thinking of being. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So one of the patterns of someone who's gripped by an ideology is you avoid all everything that contradicts your view and your perspective. You isolate yourself, whether that be, that's not just a physical isolation, that could be an intellectual isolation. I will only read and listen to things which reinforce my views. I will only interact, to use a relational example, with people who reinforce my views. And I mean, this is this is so dominant to the point where, you know, ideas are viewed by people as increasingly dangerous. There's moral language tied to, um, 
you know, disagreement mm-hmm. rather than discourse. Like I can't be around someone who thinks different than me because it's harmful to me. Yeah, It's violence. It's violence right. yeah. and this type of thing. Well, that's, that's the characteristic of a fool mm-hmm. of someone who wants to isolate themselves. And why do they do that? They seek their own desire. You want to be able to do what you want to do. You want to be able to think what you want to be able to think. And the greatest threat to that is other people. Uh, you take no pleasure in understanding, but just want to express your opinion. So these people on the one hand, and we all have this proclivity in us, we have to resist. Uh, we want to run from, refuse to listen to, avoid people that contradict us and confront us. But we're simultaneously so vocal about our own opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and expressing ourselves. Well, this is this is what the Bible calls folly. And this is a, a demonstration of ideological thinking. So maybe a bit more of a definition, what I mean by ideological thinking. It is a form of reductionism whereby we seek to simplify and understand the world around us by trying to fit reality within a set number of principles, practices, etc. So it's a form right. of reductionism. It's like these three things or five things are true mm-hmm. and all of reality has to fit into this paradigm. Right. And if you're not, then this, you know, you see this online by, you know, everyone has to be on board with this political agenda or you're a Nazi. Yeah, there's no, there's no. Well, you see this even middle um, ground. If you've ever tried to talk to, you know, somebody who's sold out to Marxism, try to talk to them about, uh, you know, the economy or something like that everything has to fit into that framework. Yeah, and everything that doesn't yeah. fit in is just, well, that just can't be true. Yes, you know, um, there's no, there's no room for, you know, uh, human sinfulness or anything like. It's all got to fit into this Any narrow nuance. box. Yeah. yeah. It's a narrow-minded way of thinking. It's, so, yeah. How would you respond to people that would that would claim that Christianity is an ideology in that sense? Uh, well, I think Christianity is the anti-ideology in in several ways, which we're going to get to. Um, but Christianity frees us from the moral biases that we possess. Uh, that is our unwillingness to see and observe life for what it is. So. Uh, Christianity has been characterized or caricatured, I should say, as being biased. Um, Christianity is certainly a set of beliefs through which we interpret all of reality. But we would say Christianity is a set of beliefs that give us the most freedom to see reality for what it is. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll get to kind of how God does that. But, But yes, Christianity is not just one ideology for another. Christianity and Christ is the anti-ideologue and and that we need to start talking about our faith in those terms. So back to an ideology being a reductionistic way of understanding the world. Um, I want to read this quote by Jordan Peterson. He's, he's written on this in his forthcoming work and I found it really helpful. He says, referring to the failure of ideological thinking, Ultimately, however, it is a failure because the world is too complex for its many manifestations to be reduced to a single cause. So you talked about Marxism, right? Why, is, why are there problems here? I mean, original Marxism, ec- economics, right? The disparity in, in the classes, the economic classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and while there may be a measure of truth to something, you can't reduce all of society's ills to economic problems. Um, 
It becomes an exercise in post hoc rationalization rather than an attempt to understand, predict, and control and proof of understanding. It's camouflage, facade, and fraud. It looks like analysis. It sounds like thought, but it's just an algorithm. Content in, machine-like rules applied, wisdom out, right? You see this in a lot of the social justice commentary mm-hmm. these days as well. There's, there's just one answer to everything. There's one problem everywhere, and everything, it can be boiled down to it's this. It's all power structures. It's right? all a power structure. Yeah. It's a matter of power. Um, technically, in fact, it's the equivalent of a compression algorithm and a biased one at that. And I found that super helpful. Mm. So it's not actually enlightening or opening your mind to reason or opening your mind to categories or to, um, uh, truly observing even in a scientific sense, what's going on. It's reducing everything. It's confining and conforming everything. Yeah to a set of principles and practices. We all see this in in all of ourselves. When you're confronted with a, a, a large quantity of information and you have to sort through it in your mind, yeah. the easiest thing is to try and find one or two things that will sort of answer everything. Yeah. Uh, but it, we just need to resist that impulse, oh, right? Yes. And this is, yeah, so he goes on to say, it simplifies the world as all systems of category simplify the world, but it does so in part by simply ignoring those elements of reality that are not easily explained by the theory. And this is the key. Every system of belief is an, it is an attempt to simplify the world, and there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. The problem is when you ignore and discredit and dismiss and disregard information that would um, not even contradict that, but even helpfully clarify points of your theory or or bring greater nuance. You fail to integrate, in other words, mm-hmm. new information. And this, this, sadly, you know, the role of education in part, a true education, is to avoid this kind of thinking by exposing you to um, people, places, times, ideas that you don't have in your mind and heart right mm-hmm. now to get you to work through and process and integrate and reject. Right. But education today is ideological training. Mm-hmm. Here's the way the world is. Here's three things you need to, you need these paradigms and you need to interpret all of your reality through it. And you add to that a, a religious and a moral fervor and hysteria to it. So it sounds really righteous and pious. It is the anti-education. Mm-hmm. It is the anti-wisdom. Um, it's folly and it's ideology, mm-hmm. you know, and, and rather than having our minds and our categories expanded, uh, they're just reduced, shrunk. Yeah. There's a great uh, essay C.S. Lewis wrote on the reading of old books. Yeah. It's in a number of his, uh, the those books that have his little essays in them. Yeah. And he says... That we should we should read more old books, obviously, because uh, you know don't read about Plato, read Plato. Yeah, right. And the reason is, and this, he's talking especially about other Christian writers from the past, is they were blind to the assumptions of their age. Yes, we yes. have different assumptions in our age, right? Yeah, but we can look at them and and see it's plain as day what their cultural assumptions were, and yes. we can say those were wrong. Yeah. Um, we can't do that with ourselves as easily until we can look at other people and say, okay, I believe this person was a true believer, even though they had these crazy ideas about this or that, whatever, whatever it might be. And it allows us to better examine ourselves and say, where's our blind spots? What is it that we're overlooking for the sake of our 
ideology. For, Abs- for absolutely. And that's a great point because what is happening today is the polar opposite. We remove gendered language. We remove, we literally in Ontario, we take out books from the library with traditional family structures. Mm-hmm. Even if you think that's wrong, there's a value in keeping it there so that you can interact with, that you can have your ideas challenged so that even if you commit on the other side and say that I think we've moved on, we've progressed, we've whatever, if you are a wise person, you want to do that. But we have revisionist history. We have the burning of books, so to speak, yeah. in the name of justice. Oh, you see it right now with you know purges on social media. It's like, I don't even want to see the other side. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 Censorship is yeah. a huge thing. This is the opposite of wisdom. And uh, it's done so with, you know, loaded with moral language, right? Oh, well, it's a threat to people. Oh, misinformation is dangerous. It's like, well, who decides what's inf- misinformation? Yeah. And that's why you need to, uh, you need to have, yeah, people from other places and times, especially, which we'll get to. Um, Proverbs fifteen twelve: a scoffer does not like to be reproved. Uh, he will not go to the wise, to the wise. So a fool who's characterized by a willful inability to perceive and process information that doesn't fit their paradigms. Um, what do you do to keep that kind of lifestyle going? You avoid people who might contradict you, who might confront you. You don't go to the wise. I'll add in this. I didn't put this in my show notes. And this should be the Biggest point of application. What is, the, what is one of the biggest human antidotes to ideology and folly? Fathers. Yeah. And I have I have seen, without exception, men who did not have Christian fathers, who did not have fathers, who struggle with their identity, have a suspicion of, an awareness of, and see authority and fatherly figures as a threat to them. They're uncomfortable around them. Even godly men. And... Um, part of what a father does is he teaches his son to to uh, receive reproof, to not just receive it, to love it, yeah. to love it, because it comes from someone who loves you, who cares about you. Mm-hmm. Whereas apart from that exercise of the father imitating the heavenly father, we see reproof as a, you see the fool as a danger. We hate it. This is a threat to us and our identity and our beliefs. But the wise person runs after it, seeks it. That uh, brings to mind Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Yes. You know, the things that hurt us can often help us. Yeah. And, you know, the Bible's very clear about the discipline of the Lord, right? The Lord disciplines those he loves. And, yes. Um, it's for a greater end. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Wisdom seeks reproof, whether from fathers, whether from friends, you know, in the context of the lo- local church, our brothers and sisters. Um, this is repeated over and over and over. I read Proverbs 18 at the beginning about a fool isolating himself. Proverbs fifteen fourteen: the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feed on folly. The pursuit of knowledge is the path of the wise, but fools just want to reinforce their views and avoid knowledge. They are content simply to justify themselves. That's their highest aim, to justify themselves, which means they're characterized by excuses, not the pursuit of developing convictions. We've we've seen a lot of this in in the Christian community lately. There's been a stark contrast, and I've noticed it's not about where you land, it's about, you know, one group of people is trying to process through information and develop categories and paradigms 
Um, what is the church? What is the state? How do we relate? Things that we've never thought about before. Let's talk to politicians. Let's talk to lawyers. Let's talk to theologians. Let's talk to historians. And another side is just trying to reinforce, you know, everything that they already believe. And this is an unhealthy mm-hmm. thing. How do you, you know, act out of this then? You discredit, uh, dismiss, and destroy what we don't want to hear. That's where you see censorship now is a big thing. This is what happened to Jesus, Matthew eleven nineteen. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Right. How do you how do you stay isolated from people who are telling the truth? You discredit them to dismiss them. Yeah. Right? If you can't shut them up, you you slander them. Yeah. I was just having this dialogue with someone the other day. You know, it's like he's like, This is a hate filled, vile thing and you should look into it. They're Nazis and I looked into it. It's just like, oh, basically anyone to the right of Stalin is a Nazi, yeah. according to these people <laughs> and a white supremacist. Yeah. And it's you know, it's like I just had the thought. I was like, wow, I guess I'm a Nazi and a white supremacist. And yeah. this, that, Christian nationalist. That's a new word. Now. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever yeah. that means. <laughs> so, but, but that's an attempt to, I don't need to listen to you. Yeah. I can dismiss what you're saying. I can stay isolated and stay an ideologue and stay a fool because you are evil. Right. And this is, this is just pure hubris. I mean, we can look back and say, oh, you know, Hitler's so bad. And we think, oh, maybe... He, just using him as an example. Yeah. If I lived back then, you know, I would have been one of the people hiding Jews in my attic. Yeah. No, you wouldn't have. No, None probably not. We would have been going along with the flow. Yeah. And so this this idea that uh, it's so bad, it's obvious to everybody. Yeah. Well, it's not. No. And for 50 years, we're going to look back on right now and have a whole different idea of yes. who was on the right and wrong side of history, as they oh, yeah. like to say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you do need to read and you do need to, you listen to people who have different opinions than you yeah. and, and all these things. So the way this ideology, as I said, is expressed in the New Testament, we could summarize it as uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans one yeah. eighteen, which is why this isn't just a mind thing. It's not just a habit of thought as integrated creatures. It is a moral and a religious thing. Right. We, we don't want to be confronted with where we're wrong. We don't want to have our identity challenged. We don't want to confront what we're afraid of, all of these things. So what do we do? We suppress it in unrighteousness. Right. And I mean, this is what the New Testament calls uh, the works of the flesh, right? This is living in yeah. the flesh, right? You're, you're gratifying the desires of the flesh. But what's the antidote? The antidote is to be born again, to be born yeah. of the spirit, right? Yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right. This is, this is what uh, Jesus is talking about in John 3 when he says to Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Right. Yeah, yeah. and so how that relates to our conversation is that um, unbelief is an inherent and Uh, It's an inherent bias that cannot be overcome by man. It can't be overcome by education. It can't be overcome by more knowledge. It is a bias uh, of our hearts that in an unwillingness to see the world for the way that it is. Now you can see a lot of the way the world is in unbelief, but you can't see everything. You can see the problems. Yeah. You can't put your finger on the solution. Yeah. At least, at least to a certain level. So we want to say that Christianity on the other hand is a removal of a bias to just to talk in these terms. Um, 
when we're given a new heart to see the kingdom of God, when we are, uh, our heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. What's happening is that those biases of unbelief, that unwillingness to comprehend, to receive, and to act in accordance with the true nature of reality is removed. Right. And so Christianity is the, and Jesus Christ is the, is the, um, anti-ideologue, you know, mm-hmm. he, he turns ideologues into f- truly free thinking people. Right. And this is the opposite of, as we were talking about the way the world views it. They see mm-hmm. Christianity as this lens, this bias, this, um, paradigm that you can't see anything outside of. And, and it's actually the opposite. Right. This is, uh, I mean, you would call yourself a Baptist. Yeah. You know? So this, I mean, this is what baptism is, right? It's a symbol of dying with Christ and, yeah. and being raised with him yeah. to new life. Yeah. Right? So your old self is dying. Uh, you're born again by the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a new heart and a new mind. You're able to accept the things of God. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And so, you know, back to the beginning, what is, what is the antidote to this? Well, the opposite of, of folly uh, and ideological thinking and acting is wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom, it says in the Proverbs, is the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 15, 33, is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. So this posture uh, of wisdom, wisdom has a posture that's characterized by fear of the Lord and humility. And I define wisdom, and I think this, the Proverbs is define wisdom, I summarize by saying, is the capacity to see the world for the way that it really is and to act in accordance with that reality. Mm. So it's not only the capacity to see, but true wisdom acts appropriately to what you have seen. And um, this capacity, this wisdom uh, begins with a posture of fear of the Lord and humility. So we see again that it's not just a change of mind or or new information or education. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's a fundamental posture of the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, vertically, as it relates to God, and as we submit to him, as we trust him, as we fear him, we actually have our minds uh, opened. We have our eyes opened, our, our minds expanded to see things in the world. Um, we already read from uh, Proverbs fifteen thirty one, but uh, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. But whoever ignores extra- instruction despises himself. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So while ideological thinking seeks to constantly be affirmed. Wisdom will seek reproof, correction, instruction. They will willingly submit themselves um, to people's criticism because they want to, they don't want to just win. They want to know the truth. Hmm. And uh, this begins with the fear of the Lord. You can see that working out, say, if you discipline a child or Mm -hmm. you admonish a friend, Mm -hmm. you know, if they react instantly mm-hmm. uh, in a defensive posture, mm-hmm. that's the ideology. That's. Yes. Uh, but if there's if there's a contemplation mm-hmm. and a 
a desire to actually understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, they may not think you're right right away, but yeah, at least even if you think about it yeah. uh, and they're going to take it to heart, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's the posture of, of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what we need in our day and age is fundamentally a recovery of wisdom and we need wise people instead of foolish people. And we don't just need to get the word out more. We don't just need more, you know, followers. We don't just need more influence. We need a radical change of heart uh, that is um, that is characterized by fear of the Lord and is characterized by humility, and uh, that produces wisdom. And to bring it all the way around, this is only possible through the gospel. This is only possible as we. Um, receive the good news of Jesus Christ, and as we live out of that good news, look at listen to how Paul characterizes the gospel in Second Corinthians four, three to six. Second Corinthians four, three to six. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of. God. So there's this inherent blindness. There's this inherent bias that unbelievers have. There's information, there's reality that they cannot comprehend. And, and, you know, I can hear people saying, well, that's just a spiritual thing. You know, it's like, no, Christ uh, is the creator as well as the, as the redeemer. And we understand all of not only human existence, but all of this natural world in light of him. To not comprehend Christ is to, uh, you know, have obstacles in understanding the rest of his creation. Uh, these aren't separate compartments. He goes on to say, for we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine under darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. What strikes me about that last verse is that it's it's uh, paralleling God's work of creation, mm, where He created yes. where He created light out of yes. nothing. Yes, that is akin to what He does in our hearts in the new birth. when we're born again, and that's that's mind blowing. Yeah, and notice the parallel. The unbelief is a veil over your eyes. Mm. It's a lens that you just you see through that you can't. It's this dirty glass that you're looking through all the time that prohibits you from seeing the true light. And what the new birth is, it is a removal of that veil. It is a removal of bias. It is a removal of ideo ideological thinking to see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his gospel and of his father, uh, and then to see everything in light of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's to see the sun. But when you see the sun, when the sun comes up, you don't just look at the sky and see the sun. As Lewis said, you see everything by it. Yeah. Right? And all of a sudden, not only in the sky is this blazing ball of fire exposed, but everything around us, mm -hmm. it sheds its light upon and we can see more clearly. That's what the new birth is like. And this new birth is what produces true true wisdom, true fear of the Lord, true humility. Hmm. So, I mean, our task as Christians, um, you know, remains the same to preach the word and to offer Christ to people and to um, continue in gospel ministry and continue to live in a way that reflects the wisdom mm -hmm. of Christ. Yeah, because... 
I mean, this is offensive to the world and yeah. even to a majority of the church, I would say. Yeah. This idea that, that we are incapable in ourself of arriving at the right conclusion and of coming to God, right? Yeah. This is, this is not only offensive to the world, but to many Christians. And we need to get that straight. Yeah. If we think we can make our way to God intellectually, yeah. then we don't understand the fall. We don't understand the nature of sin yeah. and the nature of spiritual death. Yes. Right. Yes, there's there's um, apart from Christ and the new birth, there is a, a barrier and a blindness, mm-hmm. not only to seeing God. This is this is my point, but to seeing everything else, mm-hmm. uh, which we only see in light of him. Um, and, and we need to we need to we need to proclaim Christ to people. We need to explain that, that he's not just this little you know, Lord over this little area of our hearts, that he is a Lord over all of creation as a creator. And we can only understand reality in light of him. So I wanted to close the couple uh, application points. You know, okay, how do I pursue wisdom? I don't want to be an ideologue. I don't want to be a fool. What do I do? Three things. One, membership in the local church. And I mean functional membership. I don't mean your name is on a list. I don't mean you go out Christmas Easter. I don't mean, you know, you have voting rights at budget time. I mean covenant relationship. You take upon yourself the burden of responsibilities that the New Testament outlines for Christians, and you place yourself under the authority of not only the elders, but the church Mm -hmm. together, and you take up your responsibility to love them and to carry your load, to know and be known by them. Meaningful community is a great antidote to folly and to ideologies. It is no coincidence that in a day that is an ideological age, as we started by saying, is characterized by isolation. People are so isolated. Mm -hmm. University students, you know, it's hard to get university students to church. It's hard to get university students out of their room now. You know, people sit on a bus and they're on their phones and um, people are, and, and everyone knows this, we are increasingly isolated, which means we are increasingly prone to folly and ideology. If you're a Christian, you're not a member of a church, you're not, you don't know people and you're not known by them, you need to change that yeah. you know, tomorrow. There are so many commands in the New Testament given to us that cannot be fulfilled, cannot be obeyed outside yeah. of that context. Yeah. yeah. And you're forced, you're confronted with people who are different than you, who have mm-hmm. different experiences than you, who have different backgrounds and perspectives, all united around a common faith. Um, but you are challenged and pushed and you are not, because there is such a shared unity in faith, there's a, a great room for diversity of experiences and and gifts and yeah. contributions. And that is such a healthy thing. Uh, the second thing related to it is we need friends, not followers. Uh, we need to make sure that we don't spend most of our day thinking about social media, thinking about our Instagram, our Twitter, our Facebook accounts and what people say on there, not substitute human interaction for online interaction. We need friendships and we are going to do a podcast on friendship. But one of the dangers is forming friends like you form followers, people who like what you say, people who agree with everything that you think. True friends you know, as iron sharpens iron, you know, a man, one man sharpens another, or you said a true friend, uh, will, will, uh, tell you things that might hurt you. And it's an enemy profuse are the kisses of an enemy Mm -hmm. faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we need friends who love us enough to guard us, to guide us, to care for us, to serve us. If we're surrounded by yes, men, so to speak, 
Uh, we're living in an echo chamber. We don't have friends. We have people who are self-interested and happen to find common ground. Mm -hmm. We need real friendships. You're still isolated. Yeah. At that point. You're you know, still if you're isolated. Not, if you're not allowing input from other people, you're yeah. still isolated. Yeah. It's just you and three people on your island. Yeah. Right. Um, and friendship takes perseverance. You got to be willing to be hurt, to be misunderstood. You got to persevere. And lastly, uh, plug for a classical Christian education. This is a great thing. Uh, raise your children in such a way that they will gain wisdom and virtue. Read books from different times and places. Uh, study history when people fought differently, when people approached the same kind of challenges that we face differently. Um, learn to think properly. Study language. Language is help you understand that not everyone thinks the way that you think in the categories that you think. It's not just about memorization. It's learning to think in different ways mm -hmm. is so important. Uh, to debate ideas, to defend your own, um, not just to shout people down or to win, but to take responsibility mm -hmm. for your convictions. Uh, be confronted with ideas and people that we disagree with who are different than us. You know, we need to not put our kids in ideological factories where they just want to pr produce mindless people who all think the same thing. They interpret reality through the same grid. We want children to be raised who can see the world as it really is, who can learn, who can be critiqued, who can be challenged, who can respond. Mm -hmm. Well, so far we've been talking about a lot of true things. Next, we're going to talk about something good. Yeah. That's right. So I thought what we would do, we want to mention a, a book, an article, something we found helpful, something we think would, you know, be edifying for you this week in light of what we're talking about. I have uh, Karen Swallow Pryor's book here. It is uh, on reading well. And reading is a great antidote to ideology. I'm going to ask Jeremy to read a couple quotes from it. Sure. Here we go. These are in uh, the introduction to her book. Um Literature embodies virtue, first by offering images of virtue in action, and second by offering the reader vicarious practice in exercising virtue, which is not the same as actual practice, of course, but is nonetheless a practice by which habits of mind, ways of thinking, and perceiving accrue. Reading virtuously means, first, reading closely, being faithful to both text and context, interpreting accurately and insightfully. Indeed, there is something in the very form of reading, the shape of the action itself, that tends toward virtue. The attractiveness necessary for deep reading, uh, sorry, the attentiveness necessary for deep reading, the kind of reading we practice in reading literary works as opposed to skimming news stories or reading instructions, requires patience. The skills of interpretation and evaluation require prudence. Even the simple decision to set aside time to read in a world rife with so many other choices, competing for our attention requires a kind of temperance. So just to take away from that is, again, it's no, it's no coincidence that we live in an ideological age, an age where people do most of their communication in status updates, in 140 characters, in uh, small, quick, immediate communication. Um, we need to give ourselves to the practice of reading and uh, the virtues that it requires and cultivates in us to do that and the wisdom that is formed. And uh, the next one here, page 18. 
To read well is not to scour books for lessons on what to think. Rather, to read well is to be formed in how to think. In an experiment in criticism, C.S. Lewis argues that to approach a literary work, quote, with nothing but a desire for self-improvement, end quote, is to use it rather than to receive it. While great books do offer important truths about life and character, Lewis cautions against reading books merely for lessons. Literary works are, after all, works of art to be enjoyed for their own sake rather than used merely for our personal benefit. To use art or literature rather than to receive it merely facilitates, brightens, relieves, or palliates our life and does not add to it. Reading well adds to our life, not in the way a tool from the hardware store adds to our life, for a tool does us no good once lost or broken, but in the way a friendship adds to our life, altering us forever. Reading requires humility. You know, we're not just reading to link the articles that we agree with or affirm us. We're sitting beneath, we're, in their language, receiving communication from other people. So I thought uh, we would close off with something beautiful. I asked Jeremy to read a poem that I found um, to be very beautiful by Charles McKay. You Have No Enemies by Charles McKay. You have no enemies, you say? Alas, my friend, your boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. That's beautiful. May we never be without enemies. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to leave you with this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. From uh, Alex and I at Dominion Podcast, let's go live in that light and be thankful every day that God has given us that new heart. Amen. Amen.